Hey, did you see that IndieVC is shutting down? What? Welcome to Trade-Offs, where product habits Heaton Shaw and ProfitWell's Patrick Campbell discuss tech through a product-first mindset to inspire you to think differently. This week, they talk about the shutdown of IndieVC. As much as it's a blow on one option, I'm not sure if that option was ever sustainably viable. The Twitter super follow. I don't know if it's quite the second coming of Apple, but like... Accumulation of tech debt. That should be something that should be fixed because the experience is not just subpar, it's pathetic. And much more. Because amplification plus monetization is just the game. What's going on, Heen? How are things? Good, living the dream. I'm doing what I love. Well, I can't, I can't complain, you know, and... Just wanna, yeah. I just want to point out, you got a lot of comments on your hair uh, uh-huh. on the socials. Uh-huh. Um, people seem to be loving the lettuce. They love the flow, man. Um, yeah, COVID hair. It's, it seems like we've gone around the bend. In high school, I used to shave my head and have really long bangs. And they would, they would go flow back. <laughs> like literally, that's what I had because that was the thing. <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't totally shave my head, but I'd shave it enough, do the, do the sides, yeah. fade it up. And then, you know, cool. kind of a fade. And then, and then, you know, and like, so this is just what's, what's, what is it? What's old is new again for me. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so we had some breaking news just now. More so than than your high school haircut, uh, <laughs> high school haircut history. Um, we had some breaking news that that I actually broke to you because you didn't see it yet. Um, a couple hours ago, uh, Bryce uh, from IndieVC just announced that they're shutting down Indie.VC, which is kind of shocking. Like I I I don't I I actually literally on Friday did a session with the IndieVC crowd. Um, on pricing and retention. And so it's one of those things where I was just, it's, it's actually kind of close to home, but I always loved what Indy was doing. They were, for those of you who don't know, they were basically putting together, um, I don't know if the word alternative investment makes sense, but like they basically, you know, traditional venture capital, you know, you need these big swings um, theoretically, or at least like four or five X, et cetera, you know, to get, get returns for LPs. But they kind of took this route that was more founder friendly, uh, a little bit more like, Hey, you know, they, they basically kind of capped the upside, but they also capped the downside um, for the founders and such. And I don't know, it, we're, we're kind of just both reacting to this news and, and a bit shocked in, in what's going on. Yeah. I'm definitely shocked that, you know, I don't know. I, I, I want to know your take on this. Uh, my take high level is I think this is a big blow to the model uh, and, and that approach of something in between self-funding and venture-backed businesses. I f- yeah, I feel like this is a big blow. So so first, we, we only got a, a medium post, right? So there's not a lot of information out there. Um, but Bryce, so, so first off, Bryce is just a fascinating human. I've always enjoyed just my, my quick Bryce story. When I moved to Utah, uh, Bryce, you know, is based in Salt Lake and I went to meet with him and he's, he's not seven feet tall, but he's anyone who's taller than me feels seven feet tall. Cause normally I'm the tallest one in the room. We go get breakfast. It's like six 30 in the morning. He's got all his snow gear on. I think it was one of the first big snows of, of the winter. Um, and like you can tell that he goes to this place very frequently. He comes in, tries to order like a bunch of custom stuff, but the real flex was basically as he sat down, the waitress at six thirty in the morning delivers a giant carafe of Diet Coke, um, and basically is like, you know, oh here you go, Bryce, what would you like? And he tries to order a bunch of custom stuff, but it was it was a very fascinating and, and um, very enlightening kind of experience just because he he knows so much, but. I think my take on IndieVC is, is, yeah, I think it is a blow because there's a lot of these funds that basically raised off of the perceived brand and I think success of Indie. And you saw kind of this, this kind of 
I don't know what to call it, but quite like an asset class or an investment class that basically opened up and you saw Scaleworks start to do it. You saw uh, Tiny Seeds start to do it. A bunch of other folks do a little bit more founder friendly, but unfortunately, I think it's really, really difficult to get the returns when you are so founder friendly because all of a sudden what ends up happening is you need LPs who are comfortable with you know, not huge returns, but are comfortable with more predictable or smaller returns. So I don't know, it's going to be interesting. I think this is actually going to have a, a an impact, not just on kind of tiny seed and some of the others. I think it's going to have an impact on the revenue-based finance market and actually might push people to the revenue-based finance market because that end, might end up looking like the equivalent of a CD or the equivalent of a savings account. Whereas, you know, if you want the really big risky stuff, you'll still use traditional growth equity or traditional VC equity. So those are without a ton of thought. Those are kind of like the hot takes that I have. Like, um, but I, I think it's sad because I think, you know, under certain circumstances, this should work and, and this should be successful. But, um, you know, funding and balancing all these different pieces are really hard. I like the way you describe that. Where I'm at with this is like there's self-funding, which is funding yourself, bootstrapping, whatever people call it, which is using your own capital, no outside capital. Then there's basically funding, which could be friends and family, but that's still funding in my opinion. And not, not that it's bad, it's still funding. There's seed rounds and you never do more like Zapier and a few other companies out there. That, But again, that's still all venture scale, venture capital kind of model because you took someone else's money. Of course, friends and family, if you're building a, you know, a different type of business, that's fine. That's a little bit of an offshoot. So basically, NDVC, Tiny Seed, and even Scaleworks to some extent, and a few of these, they came in and kind of solved for this gap in the middle or perceived gap in the middle. Gap in the middle is, I need some money, but I don't know if I'm building a venture scale business and I want support as well because you know it's lonely building a business, frankly speaking. The blow to me is like one big option is likely to blow up in our faces, so to speak, for that middle because everything needs capital. And so what what happens there and, and the problem with funds in general are you can get away with a fund one, maybe a fund two even as a fund. So as what Bryce was trying to do with lots of individual, individually wealthy people um, and smaller like family offices and things like that. But at some point you need institutional capital from the traditional venture capital LPs because that's where the big money is. And mm. for them, I think this model is very uncomfortable because you're not swinging for the fences, going for the returns like that Andreessen, Sequoia, you know, and, and Insight Ventures and all the traditional kind of venture kind of folks look at and go after. And you have this little middle ground and it's like, well, am I going to go put, you know, whatever, $10 million, $50 million, $100 million, whatever in Andreessen's fund, which I know has some level of performance or even Sequoia. Let's, let's use Sequoia. It's a better example because yeah. they return, they return and no one can argue they return while well, Andreessen is up in the air. Who knows, to be honest. But if you ask LPs, they'll tell you that. Um, but anyway, like you, you, you look at this and you're like, oh, like as founders and as people that are, you know, both, I, I'm an advocate of both sides. I think people should do what's right based on what they think they want to do in their lives and their business and all that. This is a blow because now the middle, the there's air sucked out of the room on that middle option. But what I love that you said is that revenue based financing is probably going to fill the gap and is a much more viable alternative because there's a more traditional looking model that'll work there. So one of the reasons that LPs 
it, it, and I'm sure what Bryce is saying is true, but if the, the institutional LPs won't put in money in this thing is they'd rather go put in money in Sequoia or any of their, you know, colleagues or, or whatever, uh, that, that have a traditional return model that's high risk and high reward and high multiples while NDVC and tiny seed and others, the, the, the problem is the way those funds are set up is to be really founder friendly, as you said. So I think I think your your take on it going to revenue based financing, especially once a company has revenue, makes a lot of sense. And which means we're just going to go back to the old school, which is self funded folks scrambling to make revenue, which is what they should be doing and what venture back companies should be doing yeah. too. We're all in it to make money. We're running businesses. So as much as it's a blow on one option, I'm not sure if that option was ever sustainably viable if your funding source was going to be institutional. Because scale, yeah. scale works, their funding source isn't institutional the last I checked. It's not. And Tiny Seed, I, Tiny small, Seed is yeah. a little bit further back in the stage of NDVC versus Tiny Seed in terms of the stage of and maturity of their funds. So depending on how they want to scale, how they want to help more founders or not, they might be okay because they'll help a certain number of founders and they'll be able to get their money on multiple funds from wealthy individuals yeah. and maybe family offices. I think if you just, I think it's a positioning problem potentially. And again, I think Bryce is obviously going to debrief after some reflection. I'm sure he's already done. And so I, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to claim that we just, you know, know what happened and all these other things. But I, I think what's really interesting is I, I think it just depends on multiples, right? Because if I want a return of 20 X, I'm going to go Sequoia, like you said, but if I want a return of 20% or 30% or these types of things, then like it's better for me to give the money to ClearBank that has warrants in case that person defaults, right? So there's kind of like some sort of like asset that then can be sold. And I don't think that's very founder friendly at all, but it, it kind of seems fair to like exchange. So it's almost like that middle that you're talking about, it just makes sense to build a better bank. And that's kind of what Pipe has been doing. That's what Lighter Capital has been doing. But I know they've had their own problems. ClearBank has been doing that. Um, you know, Lodka's trying to do it with FounderPath. So it almost seems like that might be a more interesting route to fill this gap, mainly because it's a little bit more predictable. It's a little bit more balanced with the LP in this case. Um, but that's why I think it, it's really interesting is because you know, this was just less predictable for LPs, let, let alone less lucrative. Depending on your funding source as a fund, um, you either, you live and die by the funding source. That's it. And the funding sources more accurately. Yeah. And so again, I think other model, other competitors in DVC, so to speak, could work if their funding sources are different than traditional LPs. But if you're going after traditional LPs, there's a box they put you in and the box is the similar to what Sequoia, Andreessen, Greylock, mm. I mean, all, all the usual suspects. There's a box there. They understand it. And it's an investment class. It's an asset class to them, right? And so they're trying to put money there and they have an expectation of what's going to happen. This is a new as new type of similar asset class with arguably lower returns, <laughs> you know, or lower potential yeah. returns. And that's the problem for them. So yeah. I, I think part of it is just find other funding sources if you really are hell-bent on this model as a fund. Because all these things are essentially funds. Yeah. Well, I think Tiny Seed, I'm pretty sure their LPs are just a bunch of super angels and angels, right? Like that, that's that's at least from my understanding. And so that that's the kind of like when you're pulling LP money from successful founders, at least monetarily successful founders, it gets a little bit easier because they kind of get it, right? And they're willing to kind of like, you know, wait a little bit. I, I think what's interesting is like, what does this do for all the rolling funds? 
and I, like everyone's got a freaking fund, right? Like, what does this do for you know the five million rolling nothing. funds? Like, probably won't affect it. But nothing, nothing yeah, at all. Because because much, because but. see, the deal with funds is like your first fund is usually not institutional investors. Yep, it's always like independently wealthy folks, and then your second fund is and and uh, or should be more more institutionals because you have evidence and proof that you're good at choosing and there's IRR and return and things like that. That's the story here to me is just like it seems like NDVC was going after traditional LPs. I don't know why that that was the dependency over there, but if mm. if you didn't do that and you were satisfied with a certain fund size and a certain level of, you know, cohorts or whatever that you could bring in companies you can bring into the fold, um it would be fine. Um, but that's not the, that. That sounds like it wasn't the case. And again, you're right. Like yeah. we're armchair quarterbacking here, based off a medium post sure. that I haven't read, but you kind of shared it with me uh, as we're talking. But yeah. you know, uh, it, it's unfortunate, but also I think a sign of the 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 systemic uh, situation. I'm not going to say problems because I'm not sure if these are problems. These are just, just a yeah. systemic situation. And again, what I get excited about is the revenue based or whatever you call it, revenue based financing options. You probably know how to say it better than I do. Um, but yeah. those are great. Uh, if you need cash and you can do, you can get cash based on your own revenue and get it ahead of, ahead of your revenue, basically, uh, based on contracts and deals and whatnot. But that was going to get mature anyways. Like we need that to get mature. We need that to be leveled up. We need better diligence on those things. Uh, It's basically an underwriting problem. So here's the difference, right? Like fund investing in companies is already an underwriting problem, but the LPs give you a lot of room around how much risk you can take and decision-making you have beyond obviously like alcohol, firearms, and all that kind of whatever they call that category. That's fine. Those are written in the rules, but everything else, you have a lot of flexibility. When it comes to the financing options, when it comes to like revenue-based financing and things like that, it has to be underwritten. It can be underwritten now, partly because of even products like ProfitWell, where they have the data, it's, it's, it's accurate, right? And being able to take that data and go, go to a revenue-based financing uh, option and say, hey, hey, look, here's the underwriting for you. It's all about underwriting at the end of the day, right? Because if you follow yeah. the money, it needs to be underwritten to support risk and manage risk. So um, I, I find it interesting. I love that you kind of put that in there. I wasn't thinking quite that of that as an alternative, yeah. but it is more than a viable alternative. Yeah, that's what it's interesting too, because I think that what's what's fascinating if you look at Lighter Capital or Clear Bank, and and I don't know their businesses obviously as well as they do, the underwriting is is kind of the thing that's held them back a little bit because they keep getting sucked back into the traditional kind of banking lending world. It's certainly better than you know going to a traditional bank and trying to explain what the hell a subscription company is, but um, it's 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 definitely one of those things that. They, they kind of fly in the middle of, it's not quite like a loan because then all of a sudden there's a bunch of banking regulations, but it's this revenue-based financing that they can kind of get away, but their underwriters are still a lot of LPs, right? And a lot of institutions. And those institutions end up coming with strings for the underwriting. And so this is what gets really interesting about Pipe because Pipe is like, we're the exchange. We're going to hook up Goldman and a bunch of other, Morgan Stanley, a bunch of other folks. They're going to suck in whatever data they want, run their own models, and then we're going to hook it on the other end with a bunch of subscription companies. And what's what's kind of fascinating, and you and I could talk offline about this because there's some some secrets going on. There's an interesting way to go beyond just a traditional P&L to value these subscriptions that are being sold on something like Pipe or revenue-based financing um, you know, through kind of a traditional method. Well, even one and by so one, you, you, you value each contract. 
right? And, and you determine the ones that you want to bundle together and how yep. you want to account for that. But that's traditional underwriting. You're valuing yeah. assets. In this case, a SaaS business's assets or subscription business's assets is the recurring contracts, 100%. right? The recurring revenue. 100%. Uh, it's it's solid. Yeah. Like it, it makes sense. Finance people can understand it. Us as founders can understand it. I mean, it's it, it's it's elegant. While NDVC, totally. Seed, and all that, it's not as elegant as a financing option because like the underwriting is a problem and you're you're kind of taking on the risk like a venture capitalist, but you're not... You're not able to get the high the return, but the risk is almost the same if you think about it, because uh, the yeah. risk of these startups is still risky, right? And and a lot of these tiny seed NDVC et cetera are getting companies pre revenue. Last I checked, it's inelegant today, but I think it was super elegant six years ago. <laughs> you know, like I mean, I mean, maybe it wasn't like in hindsight, but it's kind of like you think about the market that started in. I think the reason there was so much hype for indie was was because it was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for like doing this, like someone should have done this. Right. And I think that, you know, unfortunately they're, they're kind of the, the first one out. So they get beat up the most and, you know, they go in one direction, but they're going to, they're probably the tip of the spear for this whole market. Like even, I mean, one thing that's kind of interesting is, uh, there's a, there's a firm called pillar, um, which is Jamie Goldenstein and Sarah Hodges out in Boston. They, they, based on this movement, they don't take preferred stock. They take common, just like the founder. Like they're a little bit more like a traditional VC firm. But I think it's, I, I think what's interesting is because of all these things in the market, it's shifted. And I think we have, you know, to a certain extent, we have Bryce to thank for that and NDVC to thank for that because, you know, again, they were, they were the louder one. They were the nice top dog brand in the market. And, you know, this movement of bootstrapping, you know, also helped kind of propel them forward. Yeah, completely agree. And we're still going to see more experiments. Hundred percent. And I'm I'm excited to to see what happens, and um, hopefully more comes out so we can know. Like I would love for this to be a, I don't know. Part of me is like, I would love for this not to have been a model problem, but to have been like a fluke problem with some partners or something like that. But no, you know, unfortunately, sorry, the, Patrick. The returns are typically it, it, it's what it's a model things. problem. Trust me, it's a model yeah, problem. I know, I mean, but I, I like I, Bryce. I met, That's what I'm I, trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm at ground zero. Bryce has been at ground zero of all this stuff where venture yeah. capitalists hang out in San Francisco. And I, I hear it totally. all the time. It is a systemic situation where LPs are putting com- you know, these organizations, these firms into buckets. And they want to invest in things that are familiar to them that they haven't expected. Not even expected yeah. return, but an expectation. I mean, think about how many LPs can't get into Sequoia's funds that want to. Yeah. Right. Like there, there's issues like that on that side too. Right. And then you have the second option, which looks attractive initially, but when you start doing the math, it's not the same math. So then what bucket do you put, do they put you in? You're riskier. Right. But you're also seeing a lot of stupidity into the market. I, I was talking to someone who's, who's raising from LPs and the amount she had to explain about just venture like just tech, like not, not, not like subscriptions, not dev products where her focus is, but just the amount she has to explain is like insane. And, and one of our, uh, it's a little anecdotal, but I think we've, we've, we've kind of backed this up in a couple different ways. It's like, there's a lot of just money flowing into tech and subscriptions just because like some of the valuations are, are getting nutty, like in terms of like, oh, you know, raising, you know, a crazy amount of money on like, 15% year of year revenue growth for an established, you know, kind of SaaS product or, um, you know, family offices seeing the word subscription and tech and just being like, oh, that's the hot thing that Apple, you know, boosted their market cap on. Let's invest in it. Right. So I think it's, it, it is interesting because there's froth out there right now. And 
you know, I think that the smart folks, like you're saying, they're getting into Sequoia, they're getting into other places, but it'll be so fascinating to see how this evolves. And I'm excited to like be on the sidelines and also in the game, you know, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited not to be in the game and not trying to figure out what's going on here, but happy to talk to you. <laughs> happy to talk to you about it all the time. I just got my little companies and I'm just doing my thing. Um, oh, no, I meant yeah. I meant like as a like, you know, you and I are nodes in the ecosystem. Yeah, That's I'm, what giving, you a, I'm like, giving you a hard time. But like there is I know. there there is some real serious uh, opportunities for your business related to all this stuff. That's why I was yeah, saying yeah. that. Not for you mine right will, now. Yeah, you and I will uh, talk. We've, we've gotten... Yeah. We've had a couple of breakthroughs and that's awesome. We're not ready to like talk through them publicly yet, but there's been some breakthroughs on like our whole business. And I, I think we give ourselves a lot of crap because it's kind of hard to describe exactly. Like I was on the phone with some uh, head of corp dev today from a large SaaS company. And I, I just, I, now I start prefacing those conversations with like, okay, so it's a little hard to explain, but I'm sure it'll, I'm, I assure you it'll make sense at the end. Basically here's what we do. But like one of the things that, um, you know, I kind of stepped took back and was explaining is like, listen, the first phase was like the data and studying the data as much as humanly possible. And now we're kind of in the second phase where we're deploying that understanding into not only our products to make subscription companies more money, but to really just kind of start creating this unified theory of subscription growth. And thereby some of the things we're starting to be able to do are like, um, you know, we, we can, I, one of them I can say like, I, th- we're about to release and it's going to be a couple months just from a marketing perspective. Like, some of the best churn health scores the market's ever seen. And I don't think that's saying a lot to be clear, but like, cause I think the markets hasn't been great at churn health scores, but we're, we're about to release them in a way that, um, as we build on top of them, you know, it, it's going to be super, super useful just given the glut of data that we have and, and the way that we can approach it. So yeah, I'm excited for it. Sorry. A little bit of a, a humble brag slash vague indication of where we're headed, but, uh, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I mean, all this stuff relates to the things we've been talking about. So, I know there's another big thing we wanted to talk about that I think is really meaty and very product focused um, and something I think you're going to write about soon, if not when this comes out, but right after yeah, um, because you tweeted about it. And I want to hear your take uh, first in terms of kind of what's interesting to you about this, which is basically Twitter announcing super follows and what that means for the world, because I think we both have some thoughts on that. But also, I think more importantly, um, for us at least, what, what that might mean for Twitter and their business and their teams. Yeah. I think there's two main threads. One thread, I think, I think we both can comment on them. One thread I feel less comfortable on. I think as a product team, you've built extensive product teams before. So I, I think there's some really interesting commentary on what this means, like for Twitter actually like waking up. And in, in my opinion, I think the one thing I feel more comfortable talking on is so for context, Twitter basically in an analyst presentation hinted at something called super follow, which if we're really being honest is kind of like a copy and paste of Patreon, a little bit of Substack, where basically I can super follow Heaton, pay five bucks a month, and I'm sure he'll get a certain cut. Twitter will get a certain cut. And then for that $5 a month, I can get access to deals and discounts Heaton can set up. I can get access to um, a subscriber-only newsletter. I can get access to um, exclusive content and a couple, like a badge that says I'm a follower, a super follower. And what's kind of interesting is like, now I said that they kind of like copied and pasted some of these things, but I know Twitter did their research because one, the amount of Twitter product people who are hitting up our blog and taking our sales team's time was really fascinating. Um, but two, like people were forwarding me the, a lot of the, like the pricing and research stuff they were doing. So I know that they did this from a bottoms up perspective, which is great. 
But I think what's really fascinating is that Twitter is, is, it's not the fact that they're going to subscription, which is getting all the hype. It's the fact that they are now taking advantage of their greatest strength, which is the creator, and putting them at the center of the value loop. Because before this, what they were doing is they had this weird thing where Twitter was in the middle and they needed people to create things in order to basically have stuff to put ads on. So they were constantly balancing between these like two different, you know, kind of constituencies that are oftentimes at odds because a creator will create something kind of ridiculous and advertiser doesn't want their ads on it. Um, but then the creator doesn't necessarily want to, you know, create more stuff because ultimately the only way that they can make money is to have someone go off of Twitter. And over the past couple of years, basically Twitter stopped like promoting posts that had links. Like you started seeing links, basically the, the click-through rates, the impressions start to go down. So the creators didn't have this incentive and they were like, well, I got to be on Twitter. You know, the biggest dogs, you know, like the Tonight Show and stuff like that obviously had big Twitter followings and would post stuff. But all these like middle and lower end creators, they just were running into a position where like, they very similar to, um, you know, why Substack exists. They were just like, why am I on Twitter when I, I, I'm not getting any help basically making money? I'm only helping this company basically run an ad model, which, you know, there's a lot of toxicity that goes with ads. And so with this move, what I think is brilliant, and then there's like an extra, like extra just kind of chef's kiss with it, is they're basically like, cool, same thing that Patreon did, same thing that Substack did. Okay, let's look at what a creator wants. A creator wants to be able to create, get an audience, and then monetize that audience in some way. Let's stop having those people go off platform and do the conversion of the most valuable thing. Not like the $4 a quarter I get from ads off of that creator, but instead like get the cut of the things they're selling or the actual subscription that they're going after. Um, and this is what OnlyFans like figured out with adult entertainers, um, which Twitter has a lot of them, which is kind of interesting. I think that's actually going to be a huge, huge market for them um, because why go to OnlyFans when I can go to Twitter? Um, in addition to that, um, went after Substack, Patreon, et cetera. And so now they have this creator in the middle. The creator is able to create the content. Maybe they can do some ads on top of it. But all of a sudden, the creator has, has a reason to stay on Twitter because that's where they can monetize. And this is where I think they're brilliant. Um, the extra brilliance comes in because Twitter for over a decade has learned how to amplify good content and amplify it to people who want to see it. Now, instead of amplifying it to people who want to see it for the sake of having ads, they can amplify that creator to get the right followers and thereby create this really, really interesting subscription loop in order to put someone, um, into the super follow. And this is something that Substack doesn't have because Substack, um, and I believe Patreon, I know Patreon has been very overt with it. They've said, our job is not to get you fans. Our job is not to get you audience. Our job is to help you monetize that audience. Same thing with OnlyFans. Like OnlyFans does advertising and stuff like that, but it's one of those things that they don't, like their job is just to help you monetize. Now Twitter is combining amplification and monetization. It's like, it's, it's one of the best moves that we've seen out of, I would argue, them, Facebook. I think LinkedIn still has an up on them because they've done ads and subscription forever. But I, I just think this is the renaissance of Twitter. So to kind of summarize, it's yes, it's interesting they're moving to subscription. We've all said like, oh, that, that's the right move because, you know, that's great to get beyond the ad network. But it's it's not, it's about them putting in them at the creator at the center of the value chain, not just as this constituency and then ult ultimately adding the amplification on top of it. So that's my little rant that I've kind of come to since, since they released this. And I actually have some numbers that I pulled for some research I'm going to publish that I can share too, but I'll pause there because that's my, uh, that's my exhausting rambling here.
No, that's great. Here's what I got in my head. Patreon started it. OnlyFans took it and ran with it uh, for a certain segment of audience. Uh, and then Substap came in and said, what? <laughs> you know, th- I think they just said, <laughs> they, they just said what? <laughs> and, and the reason I say it like that is because that's funny. a lot of alternatives to Substack existed before Substack, whether it's um, WordPress plugins plus MailChimp plus Stripe or uh, a company that uh, Twitter ended up acquiring, Revue. Right. They acquired it in January and they're basically a Substack competitor. Again, I'm butchering it, but they're an email tool that allows you to monetize. Basically, Um, I think the friction for that product was historically really high and Substack. The friction for Substack is extremely low in terms of getting started and getting it going. Also, the focus on monetizing uh, your emails was definitely a Substack thing. No one else really pushed that. But then you look back at like what I call the IM crowd. So this is an Internet marketing crowd. And the people that have been doing this for years using WordPress, basically, plus an email provider, uh, and then whatever tools they could, Gravity Payments is one that comes to mind, and a bunch of others that they were using back in the day. This is all old stuff. Old, old, old stuff. This is how people make money online. They charge for emails. I'm sorry, like most people don't realize this, but it's true, right? Like even Motley Fool is the same model right? Same model. It's a content subscription via email. So when I think of it like that, this was just such a big opportunity and a big play, period. Now, you you throw in the, oh, Twitter's already got distribution. It could get you distribution. Game over, potentially. Because like you said, Patreon and others just don't have the ability to give you those subscribers and that distribution the way Twitter does. Nobody actually does today for content because you already come to Twitter for content, right? Specifically like content you like, you follow people. And if you want more of their content and they put it behind a paywall and Twitter's powering that, wow, like their numbers are going to jump super fast on the subscription side once they actually turn it on and make it work right. Plus you're already used to posting tweets all you got to do, this is a paid tweet. This is a not a paid tweet, but this is a tweet for my super followers, right? Um, it's like just brilliant in my opinion. And they also gave it a good name, super followers. Like you already have followers. Now you got super followers. Like it's like super fans, right? Um, super poke I, was terrible. Super follow is brilliant. <laughs> Great. Go tell Max Levchin. Yeah. Um, that, that's what's up, right? So like when you think of it that way, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm double clicking, triple clicking on what you're saying. Here's what I'm thinking though. Uh, that's just a completely different angle. I look at Twitter today. I look at super followers and the announcement about it, the acquisition there on review also like spaces by Twitter, which is going after clubhouse. Um, I've used the product. It's interesting. So the way I think about this, let's just look internally for a second. The company has clearly dealt with some level of tech debt, if not a lot of tech debt, they wouldn't be able to launch new features that feel pretty smooth and almost better than the core experience. Spaces feels really smooth. If you try it, it's smooth. It's it's basically as smooth as Clubhouse. Like there's very, and it's a little bit smoother because it's built into Twitter. So from a friction standpoint, it's really really smooth and a delightful experience. And kind of essentially is a lot of the interactions that Clubhouse kind of has and doubled down on and has even invented in some cases. It's already got the kernels of a lot of that, plus a few tricks up their sleeves with like automatic captioning and stuff like that, which I think is a super useful feature. I find that both awesome and slightly concerning. The reason for that is you get all this momentum once your tech debt's complete, 
and like you feel like you're in a good spot and it's never complete, but complete meaning you've you've just taken that pile of poop, so to speak, of tech debt and reduced it down to almost nothing. But more importantly, have people on the team that are attacking that on a more regular basis. That's really the the outcome, which is you're now more conscious of tech debt and you've solved it. And this is like, I'm assuming a multi-year effort longer than Slack's 18 months that I keep hearing about that they took with their tech debt. But what I'm concerned about is so much momentum on new features. So, so, so much. Well, what about DM search? It's terrible. What about syncing? <laughs> what about syncing across devices yeah, and experiences, web, desktop, mobile? Like to me, this company will make money on these moves. Even spaces like whatever happens, like it's a good defensive and offensive move, depending on how you view it. I think the the super follows is like just brilliant and needs to exist on Twitter. Twitter is a right product to have that because of the distribution potential someone can get. We we're gonna see like so many people pop off with that that probably don't even have audience enough audience today because they just have premium content that they could put on there, and then the distribution starts getting built because Twitter's a network. But until as a user and even like a kind of, you know, armchair quarterbacking like this this move, I'm concerned until the core product gets better. Because what I believe is there'll be a degra- degradation of these new features and products unless the core also gets better at the same time. So I really hope people are working on the core and making the fundamentals better again. Because yeah. that's why we keep coming back. So think about how much more you would use direct messages on Twitter if it worked well. And, and, and everyone that's used it knows these issues. But if you've ever, like, like there's been a time when I used it to give away my pitch deck guide and I had to send 10,000 DMs manually. I'm not saying it's their, it's, I'm not saying it's their problem to create automation at all. I actually enjoyed yeah, sending yeah. them. I like knowing everyone I sent them to, but I literally sent over 10,000. It might even be 20. It's terrible. It, yeah. I didn't have issues because I have a system and I figured it out like issues where like, I'm like, oh, it's broken. But the little nagging things are just to a product person so damn obvious to fix and not actually difficult. So what I wonder is what's going on over there that makes it so I can't find my DMs, period. Like what's going on there? Like who Mm -hmm. is just not having the right discussions? Because that should be something that should be fixed because the experience is not just subpar, it's pathetic, and yeah. there's so many areas of Twitter that are like that. This is not the only one. I'll give you another stupid one. So for my own mental health, I, I got all my followers down to zero. I have to check almost on a daily basis to see if all of a sudden there are people I'm following. Why? <laughs> Why? Yeah. I can't even, for the life of me, explain without talking to an engineer that I would know to tell me hypothetically, why would that even happen? Why do I continue to have ghost follows that I have to go back in and undo that I never wanted to follow? And I might've followed before, but I thought I got everyone down to zero. The number says zero most of the time. Like today, literally I looked and it's like, I'm following five people all of a sudden, but I was at zero and I didn't follow these people like recently. What's going on? So to me, these fundamentals are what companies, especially at scale, have a very, very hard time fixing, especially after you would think they would fix it because they just solved a bunch of tech debt. But instead, everybody, every product person, every engineer, everybody wants to go work on the new things. And also strategically for Twitter, working on the new things makes tons and tons and tons of sense. So 
my yeah. rant for, is more about, hey, pro- product folks over there at Twitter, can you please fix the things that like just should be fixed? Just period. Like they just should be fixed. There's no argument you can make yeah. of why they should not be fixed. And on the same token, and I'll be done with my my little podium for a minute here. Um, <laughs> I am a humongous fan of Jack Dorsey and his ability to find people who can execute with his kind of way of working. And he's done that at Square, and Square's execution is flawless. And now they're a bank, too, and they just announced that. So whatever Jack is doing, I just hope he does more of it and gets the fundamentals fixed, too, because I'm excited to see what, what's happening at Twitter. So none of this is criticism. It's just more like, hey, please fix it, because I'm sure the business will be much bigger if, if some teams are just focused on the fundamentals and doing that hard work. It's interesting because he, you know, he runs both companies, or at least you know, is, is in name running both companies and Square has taken off like a rocket ship in so many different ways. Whereas Twitter, we haven't really seen anything new since fleets. Right. And that was really recently. And then Spain, like this is all, you know, in this little time period, I think what gets interesting and, and I have a little bit of a, not a rebuttal, but a little bit of like a, a little bit devil's advocate. I don't know if those DM annoyances matter. I don't know if, you know, and I have them too, you know, at least we haven't seen the fail whale in a while, but I think the reason I don't think it matters is because they need to improve this 10% over time. Absolutely. But I think the revenue solves all problems. And the reason it solves all problems is because we're already there. Like Twitter is tapped into something and it's the 240 characters formerly or 280 characters formerly 140. They have tapped into something where even without Donald Trump, we still have such fascination and such scrolling that happens on Twitter. Yeah. This is basically the 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 iOS of social networks, right? Like we're all there. All the like mass affluent, as they call it, you know, people who make over $75,000 a year, they're there because they're following their journalists, they're following their media folks, they're passing around dank memes, they're doing all these other things. And yes, some of that traffic might change to, you know, it didn't really change to Snapchat that much. Maybe it does change to TikTok at some point. But I think ultimately what Twitter has done is they've been able to capture us from an intellectual standpoint. And because of that, when they add something to the platform that they're in, gets us to compound that fascination with their platform, all of a sudden it's like I may get aggravated because I'm trying to have a live conversation with, you know, the Beastie Boys or whoever I'm super following. But I'm not necessarily going to care because I'm interacting with the Beastie Boys, or at least I feel like I'm interacting with the Beastie Boys. So I I think that it's less of a, it doesn't matter. I shouldn't say that. It's more of a, like, I think this can actually overcome and therefore bridge them to a point where there's enough revenue in order to um, solve some of those problems. But I, it's hard because they've had some really talented heads of product. They've had some really talented heads of engineering. I know product, it was like you were there nine to 12 months and you were gone you know, for a while. But like they've had some really talented folks and obviously it's a hard problem. But I, I just, there's, there probably is some lurking variable there that we just don't know. Um, that may tank the whole thing. But I, I just think that we're still there after all this BS. So th- there's got to be something, and this isn't going to hurt that, at least in my opinion. There's probably over 5,000 employees in the company. So I think when companies have thousands of employees, these kind of things are not excuses. Like you can't make an excuse that yeah, we, can't, but we like, can't fix it. I'm not saying it's an excuse. I'm yeah. saying it's that it's a, 
I, it's terrible. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like being like, oh, this is fine. I'm just saying that like, if there is a company that has somehow succeeded despite itself, it's Twitter. Like, think about it. Like, they, they, they haven't done much in a long time. And like, even with Donald Trump, even with all four years, not, I'm not saying for great reasons. I'm just saying all these eyeballs and all this like active usage spiking, you know, the stock was kind of anemic, right? Like, yeah, it's gone up a bit here and there, but like, and I'm not saying they should have taken advantage of that, but they should have taken advantage of parts of that or learned something from that. So I don't know, like they, they have us, they have us ensnared. And I think this just ensnares us further. And, you know, I'm sure the chicken will come home to roost at some point from technical debt, but I'm not sure it's going to be like the thing that affects them, at least in the short term. Never is, right? Tech debt, it never hurts. Yeah, debt. no, no. I think the tech debt feels like they've made a, a lot of progress on it from what I, what I can tell if they're shipping new stuff. My issue is just I hope PMs are working on the hard problems, which are just constantly yeah. existing in the platform because there's there when you have those, there's a massive degradation of trust that's a slow erosion that happens over time. And the biggest problem with consumer products is that the alternatives are like one tap away. And, yeah. and and you're right. Twitter's lucky in a lot of ways that it's very unique. There isn't a direct, direct competitor. Even Facebook tried and never figured out how to compete with the use cases you go to Twitter for. Um, but they tried and then they gave up or stopped for whatever reasons that are internal. But now there's also TikTok. There's Instagram. There's these things you can go to if you're just having a poor experience on Twitter. And I don't think everyone's having a poor experience or any of that kind of stuff. But there's almost an erosion there that happens that that you just don't see or understand. And again, it's like basics. Let me search DMs. Yeah. Like, like, and I keep harping on that one because that's just an obvious one. Oh, that, it's so annoying. That's it's an so obvious one that like... I'm like, I talked that, like, to that guy last week. What's going on? It makes no sense. And then the quickest way is you find the person on Twitter and you hit the message button and you go to it and you're like, oh, there, there you are. Oh yeah. Okay. Like, it's just like, Hey, come on. Like, like you got 5,000 employees. I don't know how many engineers and product people. And like, someone's just not making the right call or has, has the right, I don't know what it is to make that happen. Uh, executive sponsorship, whatever you want to call it. And I wish I knew more about this because it's a case study in, in something, you know, Um, I would say, yeah. Like, if there's no one involved with this right now, if no one's working on it, it would be absolutely insane. Like maybe they're not the right people and that's why it's not like fixed, but it would, it would be absolutely like, what are you doing? Like, right. Cause like core infrastructure has to be something, but even, even apart from these, just given the number of users. So yeah, it's so interesting. I think, what do you think about like, cause this comes back to our, you know, reducing friction. I'm already on Twitter. Therefore, like my super follow here makes the most sense rather than going to Patreon or something like that. I think what gets really interesting is I know Facebook is kind of poking around um, all puns intended at like doing something like this with newsletters. I know LinkedIn has had some newsletter stuff. I feel like, like I feel like Facebook with the exception of like Instagram, it like ages out almost <laughs> like it just starts aging out. Like maybe my mom will like follow her favorite quilter. Cause she still goes on like Instagram and sing or uh, on Facebook and Instagram. But like, you know, Twitter might be kind of like, those who are like more politically minded, um, you know, culturally minded. TikTok and YouTube is where, you know, kind of the youths 
uh, the youth end up getting their super follows. Cause I just feel like it, it makes total sense for all of these platforms just to include it. Cause amplification plus monetization is just the game. I, I am in the camp of they need to do this. I am in the camp of it's going to impact revenue greatly. In fact, you have more info on that and data. You want to share some of that data that's on it's your crazy. mind early. So yeah, for, bring it. What do you so got? First, they, if they do not let creators, uh, set their own prices, I will personally go to that empty office and burn it to the freaking ground. I shouldn't say that because San Francisco is suffering enough, but like it, first of all, they, they teased a photo. So we don't know all the details and stuff like that, but they teased the photo with $5 a month for, for a super follow. Um, and basically we, we, I did a study, I think it was about 4,000 different, um, people who have paid for only fans, Kickstarter, Substack, a bunch of these other things, Patreon, um, just a nice like sample and then basically found and separated them out into super fans um, and then passive fans. So they're still fans, like they're still willing to pay, but maybe their affinity is not that high. And then people who like they're they're part of the Justin Bieber fan or like something like that. Um, even the passive fans were willing to pay like their median willingness to pay was right around seven, eight dollars a month. The super fans started to get into fifteen dollars per month. Um, which is kind of wild. And it, it like surged up to about $25 per month. And what was really interesting is then I separated this out by basically the type of artist or the type of creator. So musicians, uh, entertainers and comedians, um, adult entertainment, alternative news and media. Um, and I think there were like educational was another one. What do you think was the lowest one? What do you think had the least willingness to pay? Health. Meaning health. I didn't test health. So that's my fault. Maybe it didn't have that. I don't that know. was actually dumb. I made but, it up. Uh, basic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But what do you think out of the ones I mentioned? Sports. Uh, no sports was actually kind of in the middle. The lowest overall willingness to pay, uh, was music. It was still like five, six bucks a month. Interesting. It was kind of interesting. Okay. Well, I think, do you know what, you know what my theory is there? And I, I have some data from other studies, but you know, when you mix studies, it can get problematic. Yeah, sure. Um, there's, there's just so many of us who never had to pay for music. Yep. You know, Napster, we grew up yep. in the Napster generation yep. Then Spotify basically gave us 10 bucks a month and we're like, fine, I don't want to get sued by, you know, Lars Ulrich and BRIAA. <laughs> so let me like pay 10 bucks a month. Right. And then all of a sudden it's like, we have, we have access to all of the world's music for $10 a month. I don't think we appreciate no. how, how important music is. And that's why like most artists now make money on, um, you know, Patreon is a huge, huge supporter. The highest, the highest one was adult entertainment. And that was like $12 a month on the median side, Yep. Uh, which, you know, I think was interesting. The second one was like educational and alternative news, cool. um, which is kind of interesting. Um, that gave me a little hope. Uh, I think that was around $10, $11 a month. So yeah. And, and then the packaging, I, I did some work on the packaging. Um, it was spot on. I think basically, and we did this with Patreon a while back and it's, it's just spot on. People want, um, the number one thing though is access. They want to feel like they have a connection with that person even if they kind of know it's a scaled connection, um, it's kind of like breaking through that like generic wall into like, oh, I'm part of this community. That was the highest thing. Uh, things like deals and discounts, like no one gave a crap. I think it's because like they're already a super fan. They don't really need the deal and discount to buy the thing from the person. Um, but I think some brands might take advantage of that with Twitter. So that's some data that was really interesting. But that's why I think Twitter absolutely needs to like let them set their price. Because uh, I think you're going to find some super interesting things and Twitter's going to make more cash. I don't see why they wouldn't, but you never know with Twitter. 
They well, might all of a sudden have a well, jobs I mean, complex where they're like, we make all the decisions. Well, and you're also the the guy that studies pricing more than anyone I know, at least. And, you know, that's strong. Like, it's strong what you're saying. Because it means that, yeah. like, it, it's going to impact creators, but it also impacts Twitter's revenue um, once they kind of figure that out and do that. And so I don't understand why they wouldn't, but we'll see, right? It's not launched yet. And who knows? But. Wow, if they if they didn't do that, it makes no sense. I, I get what you're saying because people people should have yeah. the creators should have the ability to choose how much they charge. The one thing that I would love for them to do, and no one has done this in this space, I think they should take a note from Airbnb. So Airbnb, when you become a host, especially if you're new, they didn't always do this, but they basically you can set your own manual price, but they have enough data now that they will tell you. Like basically like, oh, this is the price for these types of days and this type of like uh, room or whatever that you're offering. I think they should give suggestions. I think this is the one thing Patreon should do. I think they have done this from their UX perspective a little bit. But what I learned, especially in studying some of the Patreon stuff, is that they creators just don't know. Like they're 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 creating a lot of times, especially artists and things like they're creating. They don't know like should I price high? Should I price low? What should my price point be? Oh, no one's going to pay me $2 a month. Like, I don't want to do like, which kind of gets interesting, but I think they should basically suggest maybe based on the type of artist, the number of followers you have, these types of things. Um, and you just give a little, little bit of help there rather than just a blank box. But yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, totally, totally agree. We'll have to see what they end up doing, but it's such a fascinating case study. All of a sudden seeing Twitter, being able to build stuff and actually ship It's cool. It. I think, yeah. yeah, I think it's like it's awesome. I don't know if it's quite the second coming of Apple, but like it it makes me feel like okay, this thing that I've spent a lot of time on that I've been like, oh gosh, can you guys just like do something? Like it just makes me feel like mildly good. I feel <laughs> like at least mildly good, um, which I think is interesting. What do you think will happen with OnlyFans, Substack, Patreon, like Facebook, and you know Twitter kind of coming into play here? Like, what's their move, if anything? Well, one of two things usually happen. Either the the new entrants uh, in the market that are incumbents, they either slow down the growth rate or increase the growth rate. And what that really, I think, depends on is the addressable market and more importantly, the latent demand. So are there new people coming in that never considered it, like charging for a newsletter on their own and doing that? So that's what kind of... Uh, Substack's all about. Uh, then, then you have kind of, you know, uh, adult entertainment with OnlyFans and kind of that whole model. Um, so I just view it pretty basic, which is like, what what do we think is going to happen? So if the market's saturated already, which I don't think it is, then you'd see those growth rates in the other companies decline because those are both very specialized. Like like all the options, even Patreon, they're just specialized on certain types of demographics that can do that. And I'm sure the people that use those platforms are pretty happy because those platforms make them money. So that's the other little caveat, which is if something makes you money, it's much harder to come off of it and switch. Yeah. So switching costs, I think, is pretty high. Um, mm. and, and it's variable. It depends on the platform itself and how much stickiness it has. Like, uh, I debate the st- switching costs of Substack because I've just heard so many people getting Substack, building it up, and then ripping it out and like rebuilding their stuff somewhere else because they want more control, whatever. But Substack's also, to their credit, done a better and better job of providing unique features. And and they had their own, I'm sure, tech debt and early stuff that they've had to deal with that they seem to have dealt with now. Because I'm now hearing a little bit different story, which is 
I wish my personal setup that I moved to has the analytics that Substack has, for example, is mm-hmm. one thing I heard recently. So my take is I think the market's growing, not declining. And so when these things come in, they're just more options and they're also different. All these things are differentiated enough, whether it's because they focus on a certain segment, certain types of content um, or what have you. So yeah, I, I, get, I get excited and I think it's, it's just going to grow the market. And also when you think about this as a global thing, and then you think about where we're at with the pandemic and people needing to yeah. make money from home. I mean, we're in the right spot for all these companies to launch their version of paid. So first off, if you are on Substack or using Stripe, you can use Profile.com for all of your financial analytics, subscription financial analytics. Even on analytics. Substack? Yeah. So Dope. we're able to bring it in. Yeah. it's There's some things I don't think we can get based on what Substack sends us, but uh, we have a number of Substack folks. Um, using That's Apple. awesome. But um, yeah, we're starting to see more creators, like even ConvertKit folks. Um, it always depends on if they let us see the sub data because sometimes they're just using the processor and they're handling subs on their own end. Um, but it is interesting. A lot of Thinkific, a lot of Kajabi, a lot of Teachable folks as well. But anyways, I, I think what kind of gets interesting is like the lock-in effect is real, but I don't know if the lock-in effect has to do more with the payments versus some of the features. Substack right now, they have a number of the features, but I, I, I don't know if their feature set is as strong as like a Patreon. It's not. Because one of the biggest, yeah. And one of the biggest things I see that Patreon has a strength for is the community. And if you look at like Lenny um, and Lenny's newsletter, like, yeah, the, the posts are great. Don't get me wrong. But like that Slack community is insane. It's just like always going off. There's so many people in it. It's so helpful as well. It's like one of the only Slack communities that I'm like, oh, this is like useful and not just like pitching or like four people being active. Yeah, so it's just kind of interesting. I I think I keep coming back to Twitter has stacked the value for the creator, like the value for the follower and the value for them just so perfectly that it's just hard to see for me how Substack wins or how Patreon wins in this environment. Maybe it's not like a winner, like wins all, but it's probably a one in two people win all. Um, you know, at least from like a venture scale perspective, if that makes sense, but just talking out loud a little bit there. Yeah. I, I, I don't know where the switching costs lies and how to be defensive if you're one of these products, but I do agree mm-hmm. with you that like features are likely the biggest leverage, um, especially if you build the right features for your audience. And that's really, I think where the key comes in, which is like, what are the right features for your audience that, uh, either gets you more of that audience or other types of audience. Right. And, uh, I think about that kind of stuff a lot because that, that's the stuff where I I kind of feel like the rubber meets the road. Um, which Mm -hmm. is like, if you're a better alternative and someone tries to switch and those features don't exist there. And ideally those features also make you money. That's really interesting because then it's directly tied to why you're on the platform, which is to make money. So I, I look forward to seeing where people go with this. I'm actually excited that ProfitWell integrates with these tools. I didn't realize that, but you should integrate with every subscription payment option Everyone. that exists, we'll right? Get to it eventually. It's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. But yeah, that 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 switching cost thing, I think, is where where the rubber meets the road on all these businesses, uh, and yeah. and where where you get defensibility. Do you remember when Patreon started kicking off? Like, I think there was one kind of. I I don't think they were like conservative, they were kind of a provocateur. Um, and they kicked 
I believe it was him off and then like Sam Harris and a bunch of other people like left and they were like, let's start the like alternative Patreon that never really took off. I mean, I think it still exists and like they're out there, but that's, I mean, th- there's enough like there, I don't know. It's so weird. Like I want to say like, yeah, there's enough tooling out there like objectively, but like if I'm going to start this, why would I want to put all these tools together? And that's the beauty of like Substack and Patreon. So it, it, it's interesting. We do have some examples of people fleeing platforms, but it wasn't really enough to like, you know, take them down by any means. Yep. Yep. That's true. Yeah. We'll have to see what happens. Uh, we'll but, see. but yeah, there's, I guess in short for me, it's like, it's a big market, Patrick. It's just a big market. Yeah. Humans are, there's a big market in humans. There you consumers. go. And then them trying to make yeah, money. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we will see. All right, man, what else you got? That's all I got. What else you got? I don't think I have anything else, man. Anything, how's life? Things are good? Yeah. Anything yeah. new in your COVID paradise? Since no, no, just, just chilling, dude. Just more more of everything. Just more. All right, man. Well, let's wrap things up. For those of you listening, um, a lot of good feedback on last week's episode, uh, especially on social. Um, you can find us on the Twitters mostly. I think we also post on LinkedIn. Uh, and of course, if you're not signed up or not subscribed, subscribe at the, uh, basically the podcasting option of your choice, we're everywhere, uh, or head over to producttradeoffs.com and you can sign up to get this via email. Um, yeah, let us know any feedback, let us know what you're enjoying. And we always appreciate, um, a share, uh, if you want to get this into them as many hands as possible, just so that we can, you know, spread our ramblings to see if, uh, see if someone will tell us that we're wrong or tell us where we need to go in order to get right. So appreciate it, everyone. Have a good rest of the weekend and uh, we'll see you next week. Yep. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure to subscribe to and tell your friends about Tradeoffs, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.